Hi, I'm Emma Clark, and this is Before the Bar Opens, the podcast about what happens before the music starts. I talk to people who make, use, and love music. Simon Galloway is a music fan, musician, barbershop quartet singer, music trivia expert, founder of Glossop Record Club, host of the radio show Charity Shop Classics, and presenter of the music podcast The Giddy Carousel of Pop. Simon describes himself as a music obsessive. He's also a producer for commercial radio. I want to find out how music and sound influence almost every aspect of Simon's life. Now, Simon, you've sent me a bunch of photographs, which are available on your episode page, which listeners can access through the show notes. And they're absolutely fantastic because they really tell your life story through music. (laughs) So I'm going to start with the one that you sent that's a beautiful picture of you as a child and you're brandishing a seven-inch single. Yeah. How old were you in that picture? Well, judging by the Bay City Rollers album that's in the background, I'd be uh, about two years old, uh, maybe yeah, two two and a few months. Yeah, I'd have like estimated that. about two years old. You're this beautiful blonde child in these, these beautiful gym jams <laughs> <laughs> in a 1970s living room. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the static charge on those, that was enough to power the TV in the corner, so. Do you know what the record was that you brand? I mean, first of all, did you know that it was a record, that it was music? Yes, I, I would have done, yes. Uh, the record is One Man Band by Leo Sayer. Yeah, of course I know what the record is. <laughs> uh, and I knew every record that we had in the house when I was a child, and that belonged to one of my brothers. I'm the youngest of five kids, and all of them were always bringing records into the house. My mom always either had the radio on or she'd be playing records, usually those horrible Top of the Pops covers LPs of like, you know, Sounds Like Simon and Garfunkel or Sounds Like Gilbert O'Sullivan. So I was always surrounded by music and my mom told me that when just a few few days old, I wouldn't stop crying and she put a record on and I just went quiet, fell to sleep. Wow. And she realised right then that music had this power (laughs) to to shut me up, basically. It had this effect on me. So, you know, as I got a little bit older, if she was doing the cleaning and stuff like that and she needed to be child free for half an hour or something, She'd stick me by the dance set record player in my pram so that I could see it and stack the records upon there. And I would just be absolutely glued to the record player, just watching it, just watching the records drop down and spin and play. And then another one would drop down. And she says that was the only thing that would keep me entertained and quiet as a child. So did you start to buy your own records when you were quite young? Yeah, I mean, people ask that question, what was your first record? And I can't remember. Again, my mum says, you know, that if we went into a shop with records, I'd always want to go and look at them and always try and buy one. And so this is like pre-memory for me. So the first record that I remember buying, again, with my mum, probably about three years old, something like that. And every other Friday, we went down into town, Sheffield City Centre, on the bus. We were in the fish market, but round the edge of where the stalls were, there were gutters that ran round the edge of where the stalls were. Basically, as the ice melted, where the fish were being kept cold, the water would run away. I say water, water and fish blood would run away (laughs) down these little gutters or little channels and disappear. And I found a one pound note stuck <gasps> in this <laughs> in this watery, fishy blood channel and picked it out. My mum gave it a wipe with a tissue and I insisted on going and buying a record. 
and that record was the Wombles 20 Greatest Hits. There's a photo of the Wombles on the front, stood on a giant record that's on a record player, so I think a couple of them are sitting on the uh, on the tone arm of the record player, <laughs> that looked like the dance set that, that we had wow. in the house. So it was all familiar, even though it stank of fish. It was yeah, all really yeah. familiar. Well, the record didn't smell of fish. It was only, only the pound note. That was uh, the record shop's thing to deal with once I'd passed it over to them. Um <laughs> <laughs> that album has got on it a song called Tobermory's Music Machine. And I just thought it was the most outrageous thing I'd ever heard. I used to play it over and over. Because on that, Mike Bat uses, well, it's just very speed effects. But it's about Tobermory inventing a, a music machine. So it's got these mechanical noises kind of on a loop. Boom, like that. I don't know how they did it. I still don't know how they did it to this day. It's, it's a piece of magic. <laughs> and then the chorus goes, when he turned on the power, there was music everywhere. It came out of the funnel and it flew through the air. And it's something about as the record spanner around and first of all the needle stuck so it goes and the needle stuck and the needle stuck and so it does that little (laughs) trick which i'm oh that was amazing and then there's one bit where it goes slower and slower so it's doing the very speed things and then it goes faster and faster and faster and faster and now when i listen to it i know that it's you know tape very speed because it actually takes a couple of seconds to settle back into its original speed kind of like a bit of tape lag but again i just thought this was just so outrageous that you could do this (laughs) and i think it's that song along with this love of music that was there from day one, that song predicted my whole future. So thank you, The Wombles. Thank you, Fish Stall. And The Fish Stall as well. (laughs) I would have got there eventually. (laughs) (laughs) So did you start building up your own record collection then from being, well, from after The Wombles? Well, I got a few, again, you know, the the Top of the Pops type LPs, the the EPs as well called Top of the Tots. I had a few of those, but even then, at such a a young age, I knew it wasn't the uh, original artist and did actually have a proper full-on snotty meltdown when I was trying to find some Beatles songs and it it wasn't the Beatles, it was, you know, some session musicians in a basement, which has left me with a lifelong aversion to those types of LPs. But there's a strange attraction as well. Even as a small child, music was influencing Simon as a listener and a fan, but also defining his place in a family that loved music. Hearing him talk about it, music is ever-present in every part of his life, almost every moment of it. Like I mentioned, I'm the youngest of five kids, so I inherited a lot of things. I was getting hand-me-downs. Uh, my brother, when he left home, he gave me a biscuit tin, family circle biscuit tin, really battered in. And in it were a load of sleeveless Roxy Music and Brian Ferry singles. Another brother gave me T-Rex, David Bowie wow. and, and stuff like that. This is treasure. It is treasure. And my sister, she'd go out and buy a record and then she'd play it to death for a few weeks. And then she'd be like, oh, I'm fed up with that one, Si, you can have it. So I ended up with like the Stranglers and the Jags and things like that, which dates it to the, the, the late 70s. But I think the big step for me in buying my own records is when I properly started school. So first year of infants, 1978, I was going past a newsagent every day. And in that newsagent was a carousel of ex-jukebox singles. So seven-inch singles that used to be in pub jukeboxes up and down the land. And then when the records were changed over, the records would be taken out and sent out to newsagents and petrol stations and things like that. And they got that big hole cut out in the middle so that it could fit onto a jukebox. So from the age of like five, I was buying something pretty much every week. For Christmas 1978, my brother bought me a little record box that'd hold 50 singles. 
And there was two singles to start me off, A Taste of Aggro by the Baron Knights and the Smurfs Christmas single <laughs> in Picture Sleeve. Yeah, get that one, record collectors. But by the end of the year, Christmas 1979, I'd filled that box with records from the newsagent mostly, but that was when I was starting to actively go out and choose what I wanted. So I was getting things like Patti Smith, Squeeze, Jerry Rafferty. started buying my own Roxy Music records instead of just relying on the um, scratched hand-me-downs. I've never known a life when I haven't bought records. Have you still got all those records? Um, yes and no. One or two of them. Some of them are lost over the years, but when I was 16, my entire collection was stolen whilst I was on holiday with my parents and got back to find that somebody had broken into the house. And, you know, and, and I must have had about 500 seven-inch singles by that oh, point. No. They didn't find the LPs, thankfully, but all the seven-inch singles were just gone completely. By that point, I'd got pretty much everything that David Bowie had put out that I could afford, and that was in Roxy Music and T-Rex, and then, you know, just stuff that I'd bought. It was a lifelong collection. That's heartbreaking. How did you feel? <sighs> what, did you, what was your reaction? Well, it was the first time I swore in front of my mum and dad. <laughs> it's just utter devastation, I suppose. Um, violated. I couldn't sleep in the room for weeks, knowing that someone had been in there and specifically targeted my record collection. As it turns out, it was someone that was known to us who'd clocked that we weren't on holiday and broke in. And he started selling them at car boot sales and flogged a load to a a second-hand record shop in Sheffield. And obviously we had to get the police involved. I had to do, from memory, I had to do a complete list for the insurance company who then wouldn't replace any of them because it was um, new for old. So that, that that didn't really cover it. We got a payout from them, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't enough to cover the, the, the collection as was. No, because it was your records. It was your life. Yeah. It was what you loved. Yeah. And also those things were, you know, they were manufactured in whatever year. And then that's it. They were just pressed up however many thousands. And then that's it. You know, there might have been a reissue here and there. So you couldn't get those exact items new. So the police managed to retrieve some. They arrested the person who did it after I went to a record shop in in Sheffield City Centre and found the more valuable ones all in this guy's racks. Wow. And I'm like, these are my T-Rex singles, these are my David Bowie singles, this is my Rolling Stone stuff going through them. So we told the police, and they said, well, this guy's paid money for them, you're going to have to buy them back. So we had to (gasps) buy the records back from this second-hand record shop. And he said, well, it was just some guy who came in and said he was you know, selling off his collection, he just got a sports bag full of records. And it was from his identification that they tracked down the person who did it. And like I say, it was a person who was was known to us. There wasn't enough evidence to prosecute. And then the cheeky so-and-so sent me a Facebook friend request about 10 years ago that he got blocked straight away (laughs) now that is barefaced isn't it just now you sent me another picture of you and you in this one i love it are you about 16 you're playing a guitar yeah (laughs) were you gigging is that what the picture is my first ever gig yeah playing at one of the halls at school westfield school in sheffield where incidentally def leppard had done their first ever gig um (laughs) 12 years earlier um (laughs) And that was quite a big week for me, actually. So we're just coming up to doing GCSEs and I'd seen David Bowie for the first time that week. Then the next day, had an interview at college for the radio and TV production course, which I was accepted onto. Then the next day, played that gig. (laughs) Wow. What kind of stuff did you play? Uh, Everything badly. Um, (laughs) 
because we were all self-taught, apart from Chris, uh, who played keyboards, and he had lessons. He was up to a certain grade in keyboard. And initially, I was the singer, but I wasn't very good. So we were kind of like casting around for someone to fill that role. And it was when we got the singer in that kind of changed the dynamic of the band, not the sound of the band, because the sound of the band was just noisy anyway. Four <laughs> or five, 15, 16-year-olds just clattering away. <laughs> what was the name of the group? Uh, Wasting Asset. Um, <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, it came from something that we were reading in an English lesson. And it said something about trees are a wasting asset, blah, 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 blah. And me and Chris were like, that's the name of the band. But yeah, when the singer joined, I threw out Chris, who was my best mate. I threw him out of the band. Ruthless. Heartbreaking. <laughs> I felt so bad about that for so long. I mean, we've made up, we've patched things up and bridges have been built. We've actually made music together again in the last sort of 15 years. We're still friends, so it's, it's okay, people. But yeah, we were never disciplined enough to really do cover versions or not do or do cover versions justice anyway. Never knew all the chords and stuff like that. So uh, and my aim was always to write our own songs. So that's what we did. They were original songs. And we pitched up in that assembly hall. We got a PA system that we'd borrowed from one of the teachers who was in a band. And I think it was a hobbies evening or something like that. And we'd managed to kind of basically take it over. <laughs> turn it into our first gig I think we played five songs and the, the, one of the history teachers he, he was a, one of the younger ones into the Smiths and the Fall and the Housemites and things like that and he introduced us and then there's all these you know all the kids from our year basically so about 200 kids packed into this hall and the applause and reception and cheering that we got was just incredible with a more round of applause I'd like to welcome Waiting Action And so we played these handful of songs and actually we, we sounded quite competent on that. You know, we've probably been together for about a year or so at that point. Do you remember the titles of any of the songs? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can probably tell you that the set list that we did that day, so we did Laughing in the Face of Realism, or should I say, Laughing, open brackets, in the face of realism, close brackets. <laughs> We realised that because it was about somebody who was taking drugs to, to achieve an altered state of mind so they didn't have to deal with the realities of everyday life. Profound. Profound. We realised actually many years on, this was something that me and Chris were, were discussing, that actually it was laughing in the face of an art movement. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it should have been laughing in the face of reality. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was... I get the shivers, more like a 60s throwback sort of thing. Then there was Cuts Like a Razor, um, one that we never had a title for, so it was just called Jobby 2. <laughs> it was just like a word that we used at the time. And, and then we finished uh, because everybody wanted another song, and we're like, oh God, we, yeah, we've done all the songs. <laughs> so we did a cover of the Beatles' Helter Skelter, uh, as filtered through the U2 version that they did on the Rattle and Hum film. Now, you won a competition in the NME yeah. to go travelling around Europe. So how did that come about and how did that experience influence you? Well, that was the NME pop quiz. That was when I was at university. And so a few mates got together and we entered the local round, which is in the, uh, you know, in the, the, the student union building. Uh, so we, we won the local round and then we're at the final above the garage in Islington. 
Wow. Um, so this was a national competition? Yeah, it was a national competition. They went around probably 15 universities, because I think there were 15 teams in the final, and went and bloody won it, uh, which was amazing. So we each got an interrail ticket, and I was the only one out of the five of us who actually went off interrailing. So that summer, me and my girlfriend checked into youth hostels, dotted around Europe, walking down the Champs Elysees. Oh, look, there's a Virgin Megastore. It's going that one, and <laughs> um, you know, and I wanted to go to Montreux in Switzerland because that's where David Bowie and Queen had recorded, and it's where they used to do the jazz and the various music festivals from there. So you know, we had a trip out to Montreux. I mean, there's there's nothing much there, but it's where Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water, is about. Well, the smoke on the water is the casino in Montreux burning down. I didn't know that. There you go. It's, it's all about the local reference, you see. Yeah. Uh, and so just going around these places in Germany, Switzerland, my knowledge of music, looking at where recording studios were, where David Bowie had recorded and Brian Ferry had recorded in Switzerland, and just from reading sleeve notes, and it kind of, you know, you, you get all these place names in your head, and then you actually have a, an opportunity to go to some of the cities that you know that they would have at least, you know, played shows there and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was a, a real kind of eye-opening trip, and I made three C90s, three mixtapes, as people seem to call them these days, to listen to on, on the trains as we were travelling around whilst reading the same edition of Mojo magazine <laughs> for, for, for a month, something like the top 100 albums ever or something like that. And one of the albums was Odyssey and Oracle by The Zombies. And I didn't know the album, but I was just absolutely fascinated by this, you know, it was only probably 100 words about it. And then we're in, it was either Munich or Stuttgart. Stuttgart is very much like Sheffield. Munich or Stuttgart found this little record shop, CD shop, and they got that album there on CD. So I handed over my marks and then carried that around for a few more weeks until I got home, you know, I was able to listen to it. And it became one of my favourite albums, an album that, you know, when I listen to it, I'll always think of that month travelling around Europe. Do you still do that now? Do you plan a journey around musical landmarks or musical history or music trivia? Do you still find yourself thinking, well, I'm not going to take that route. I'm going to go this way because so-and-so lived there, played there, recorded there. Do you still do that now? It will have a bearing on things to some extent. But sometimes it's quite accidental. I lived in London for a few years and I'd be walking down a road and I'd be like, oh, I recognise the name of this road. And I'd turn a corner, I'd be in Manchester Square, for example, which is where EMI's offices used to be, where the Beatles had their photo taken looking over the stairwell for Please Please Me, the first album. David Bowie lived just round the corner from there with his manager for a time in the late 60s, finding the Ziggy Stardust phone box and things like that. And so, so some of it was just accidentally, oh, I find myself on this road. Well, let's just go down here. I mean, another example of that is uh, a few years ago, we went staying in North Wales on Hollyhead and we we're wandering around there and we kept getting glimpses of this lighthouse. Oh, you can have tours around the lighthouse. That's cool. Let's go and have a look around that. We climbed the spiral staircase into the top and we got this guy who's giving us a talk about it all. And he was saying, if any of you are music fans, you might recognise, you know, if you look that way, so this is back inland, just a few hundred metres, there's a, a little building on top. And he said, if, if any of you are familiar with Roxy Music's album Siren, that's in the background. And the rocks next to the lighthouse is where Jerry Hall was dressed up as a mermaid and had her photo taken. I'd have loved to have seen your face in that moment, Simon. Well, he said the 1973 album Siren by Roxy Music, and he was incorrect. It's 1975. <laughs> Did you correct him? <laughs> I resisted the urge. <laughs> I've learned how to resist those urges. But I so wanted to correct him. 
<laughs> but that was quite accidental. Simon reached a point in his life where being a fan wasn't enough. He wanted to start his own projects and take a more active role in his own love of music. He wanted to use these projects to develop and deepen his love for music. And instead of enjoying music being something he mostly did on his own, he now wanted to share it with the world. Now, you set up Glossop Record Club. What led you to do that? And, and how did you manage to do it? Because it's a huge thing now. Yeah, I mean, it's been going since 2013. It was quite a long time, quite a long gestation period and a few things that, that fed into it. I guess the first of those would have been you know, going back to the mid-2000s and getting my first MP3 player and thinking that this is a wonderful thing. You know, I can have 20 gigabytes and put so much music on. I mean, 20 gigabytes at that time was bigger than the storage on my computer. <laughs> so I was, yeah, just filling it full of all, all my favourite music. And then I thought, yeah, I can just put this on shuffle, like my own radio station sort of thing. And that's what I did. And at first it was amazing. And then probably about five or so years later, I was almost losing interest in music and just something wasn't right and I really couldn't put my finger on it because I was doing a long commute at that time as well so I was probably doing you know three hours of shuffle a day and it sounds like a dangerous substance doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> and then I was on, on the train one day I was having to go up to Preston it, it just suddenly struck me you know I'm there listening to the music and it's just shuffling past my ears you know several thousand songs don't know what's coming next i'd become passive in the whole music listening process i wasn't choosing the things it was choosing it for me i wasn't listening to full albums anymore it was all broken up and i kind of realized actually this is why i'm, I'm kind of like musically confused and lost because things have just been shuffled <laughs> ad infinitum I just don't know where I am anymore. And that was a kind of real moment where I thought, that's the problem. I must start listening to full albums. And and so that's what I did from, from that point on. A little bit of shuffle here and there, but mostly listening to full albums. And then a couple of years later, my turntable had broken and I wanted to get it fixed and got it all sorted out, got it set up in the living room and I went and got Roxy Music's Avalon album and I put it on. And just the whole ritual of mm. getting the record out, putting it on the turntable, putting it on, because I'd lost that. I'd just been listening to stuff on, on the MP3 player, taking control of it and being part of this ritual again. I'm not a format snob, but I do like records. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, for, a format that I, that I love. And I, just, I thought, God, you know, I can't be the only person who's experienced this being lost musically and, and losing that connection with with albums and with your record collection and with who you are musically. And so that's where the idea came from. And I just slowly started, you know, investigating, is there anybody else doing this sort of thing? How do they do it? Talked some guys in, in Shipley who'd not long since set up a record club there who were really helpful and, you know, just chatting to them about how they run things. And then it was just a case of finding a venue. And then, yeah, launched it on the month of my 40th birthday. So I think I was just, yeah, emerging out of my musical midlife crisis. And <laughs> that first event, I'd been living in Glossop for a few years, but because of working quite a long way from Glossop and having to commute a lot and just a busy family life, I hadn't really made any friends locally. So there were no mates or anything there that first night to support me or anything like that. I just got a kind of casual agreement with the Labour Club to use their snug every second Thursday. Managed to get, you know, a little bit of local press 
out of it, you know, uh, some nice cheesy photos of it in the newspaper, and then Twitter, Facebook, and then put it out there, and I thought, well, whatever happens, happens. So nervous that first night. We did 1973, because 1973 is the year that I was born. And my favourite album was made in 1973, so I was going to play that, Roxy Music's For Your Pleasure, which was also got a local connection to Derbyshire, because part of the album was written in Derbyshire. Brian Ferry stayed at a friend's cottage, finished off the songs and wrote some new songs there for the album. So it got that local connection. And then to try and get a bit of involvement and interest beforehand, I did a poll on the website. Uh, I just went through my record collection, dug out all the albums that I got that were made in 1973 and just put them on there. I said, which one do you want to hear? Because the original idea was that we'd listen to an album, 40, 45 minutes, have a little break, listen to another album. And the album that won that vote was Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. And I can't think of two more perfect albums to have listened to on that first night. But yeah, I was so nervous. There must have been... About 25 people crammed into the snug. You know, I was expecting kind of like six people and a dog, you know. <laughs> uh, so I'm there with these all these people in front of me. I'm like, oh, God. Trying to put the record on, and my hand's shaking so much that I nearly kind of just dropped it onto the record. But once the music started playing, it's that you give yourself over to, to the music and just switch off from the outside world, which we don't get to do very often. And to unplug from the digital world. Yeah, and then the turntable, the focal point, it just sounded fantastic. And people were just sat there and they really got the idea of it and went along with it and really enjoyed it. And then there was a discussion and stuff afterwards and making suggestions of what you could do. And people were so enthused by it. It was like, my God, you know, this worked. This is amazing. I mean, really, with that first event, I achieved what I set out to achieve so yeah I I could have just said well that's done right okay move on to the next thing but yeah it's been going since 2013 and there's kind of a real community that's built around it and a lot of friendships have been made around it as well and the idea is that it is a community thing that it's not just about me some bloke and, and his record collection showing off look what I've got it's never it's never been about that it's it's about encouraging other people to go through their record collections and bring something that they want to share because there's some other record clubs like to get along you know a musician who is involved in the album or a producer or things like that which is all well and good because that helps you know people who are running that as a business it helps them sell tickets and people get to meet a musician or, or whatever their favorite musician but my thing has always been about the people who are bringing the records and it's about their stories it's about why they like that record their memories of that record because one of the albums that we played, it was it was a lucky dip night where you don't plan what's going to be played. Everybody brings an album and then you just draw one out at random. And one of the albums that got pulled out was um, The Proclaimers, Sunshine on Leith. And I was a bit like, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but then the guy who brought the album talked a little bit about it and that uh, his dad was from Scotland and from Leith, that The Proclaimers was one of his dad's favourite bands and how he became one of his favourite bands and when you see or hear a record like that that you're not sure about, that you can be a bit snobby or standoffish about, when you see it from that other person's point of view, it gives you fresh eyes on it and fresh ears on it. And, you know, one of the most enjoyable albums that we've ever played there. And it's having that personal connection to it that I think really brings the, the records to life. It's not necessarily about it was recorded in this studio, got to this number in the charts, and it sold 45 million copies worldwide. I'm talking about Fleetwood Mac's rumours there. Um, it's about that personal connection to it. And I think that's that's what makes it special for me. And I think and I think it's why people keep coming back and new people keep coming along. How many members have you got now? 
Well, it's not members as such. It's people just turn up. It's very casual, you know. <laughs> Maybe I should have some badges made or something like that. Because <laughs> some people come just because they like that record and you'll not see them again for months. Some people come once, decide it's not for them, you never see them again. And that's absolutely fine. It's not for everybody. The first time you go to something like that, you probably do feel like a bit of a Charlie sitting there. You know, it's like, mm, I'm in a room full of strangers. <laughs> Nobody's talking. We're all listening to it's a new experience, isn't it? It's it a different is. kind of experience. Yes. to what we're used to at the it, moment in in our current society, isn't it? It is very much so. And, and particularly when I ask people not to talk through the records and mm. not to use their phones, that's the most difficult part, <laughs> trying to stop people from using their do phones. Do people do that? Do people respect those boundaries? Some do. Some like to look up information about the record that's playing and some people will just be WhatsApping the mates. There's only so far you can push that, you know. They're not paying to be there. They've come down, it's a night out, and, you know, they've seen some mates and stuff. But pretty much everybody respects the listening to the album part of it. There's one guy who comes, and sometimes we'll do something where, as part of the introduction, we might play three or four songs from different things before the full album. And he'll sit there just like, Oh, this is good. He'll be ordering the albums. He'll be buying the albums as we're sat there listening to them. So you're boosting <laughs> sales of vinyl. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we've had a few special guests along. I try and support the local music scene. One of my friends runs a record label. So I got him down to talk about the record label and play a few records. And he's become part of the of that community as well and kind of spreads out from there. He's got friends who come along and, and stuff like that. And I said about, you know, not having special people down and stuff like that. But when Marquis Smith died from the fall, a couple of our regulars are big fall fans. And one of them has interviewed quite a few members of the band. And so I just casually mentioned to them that we were doing this thing. I mean, there's been a lot of members of the fall. I think there's been some something like about 50 odd so if you're in a room of middle-aged blokes you're probably never too far from a member of the fall um <laughs> they walk among us they do walk among us well one of them's the local postman that's ben <laughs> and the other one uh, funky Sai, simon wollstonecroft is a bit of a manchester music legend but they both came down and we didn't announce that they were going to be there but we've got a lot of people come down that night who'd never been before and kind of wanted to share in the celebration that that we were putting on but just having these these two guys there and they just said a little bit about their time with the band and talked about some of the songs that they played on and people who come down were absolutely made up that these guys were there and they could have a little chat with them and stuff like that so we didn't you know like i said wasn't making a big deal out of it but we've had david hepworth down who was part of smash it's magazine launched q magazine mojo has written several music books now was a presenter on old gray whistle test and, and stuff and yeah he, he got a new book out and he, he just tweeted I'm you know, doing a little book tour. If anybody wants to, uh, you know, interested in hosting me, then get in touch. So I did, and he came down. It was it was brilliant. We've had a few nights like that. So it's sometimes just looking how you can do things a little differently that still fit in with the world of music, but it's not always about sitting down and listening to the records. Now you present a radio show, Charity Shop Classics. Yes. Is it literally that you get a record from a charity shop? And you play it. Yep. It's as simple as that, which has led to a compulsion, an addiction. You know, if ever I'm passing a charity shop, I have to go in there. <laughs> it's led me down all sorts of unexpected musical avenues. I, I never thought that I'd travel down. Before doing charity shop classics, I never owned a James Last album. I didn't have you down as a James Last fan. Well, 
I'm not. I'm not in any way whatsoever. But uh, when you go in charity shops, you do find a lot of James Lash, Jim Reeves, Klaus Wunderlich, all sorts of Scottish dance bands and all these sorts of things. And you start getting curious about what's on them. You know, when the good stuff starts drying up, <laughs> you start getting a little bit curious. You know, what, what is actually on these albums? Why did people buy them in their millions? And why are the charity shops full of them? Yeah, that's the bigger question for me. Why do they give them away? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the older generation, whether they're getting rid of records or, you know, sadly they've passed away and it's, you know, relatives clearing out the house or whatever. Uh, I mean, I think that, that certainly accounts for a lot of the stuff, you know, like classical and, and yeah. easy listening and things like that. You know, I've always had a bit of soft spot for, for easy listening and I found inadvertently as I was going around the charity shops that I was recreating the combined record collection of my childhood household. I was going to ask you if that was what you were actually doing. I wondered that. It took me a while to realise, but I totally am doing that, you know. I, you know. I have no issues with ABBA anyway, but you find ABBA in charity shops, I've started buying them. You know, the Carpenters, I mean, Karen Carpenter's the voice of the womb, but buy that stuff and play it on the show and uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Just find all these things. It's like, well, my brother had that and my sister had that. And, and it just suddenly dawned on me one day. So there is that kind of air of comfort about it and that kind of Saturday evening family entertainment feel. That's that's the kind of thing that I go for anyway. But you, you throw things in there that kind of might go a little bit left field. And certainly now that the vinyl revival, oh, vinyl's coming back into it and everybody's cottoned onto that. And I think you know, the vinyl revival was a very manufactured and cynical thing. And I think it's jumped the shark. But what it's led to is charity shops in particular thinking that they're sitting on things that are more valuable than they actually are. They're trying to charge £25 for a knackered old Slade album it's like you're insane <laughs> or mm. words by F.R. David on seven inch single half price five pounds it's like no not even at half price am I going to buy that but the bargains now are on CD and as people are switching to streaming you're finding a hell of a lot of CDs in charity shops and they're practically giving them away you know 10 pence each 25 pence each three for a pound and they're about 15 quid weren't they exactly. when you got them when you got them new yeah um, I mean I've got a stack here uh, next to me the Scissor Sisters first album still got the original price sticker on 13.99 at yeah. HMV well I bought it three for a pound and it was it was only because you know I, f- I found two things that I wanted and it's like oh I need something else oh, I'll just I'll get that stick that in there so I'm finding more recent I mean recent that's nearly 20 years old but for charity shop classics that's recent <laughs> so it increases the, the diversity of the music that you play you know i played that scissor sisters one from 2004 then after that i played a big band track from 1937 so it's about getting that contrast as well and it's got a really good following on on twitter and facebook twitter especially because what we do is while the show's going out whether it's live or pre-recorded we tweet out photos of the actual cds or records or sometimes tapes that were being played on the show at that moment and people just join in and they, they, they reply to it oh this reminds me of so and so or this is ridiculous what are you playing this for and moaning about <laughs> it or I love this song or that's a bit of a bargain and all that sort of stuff so it's got a really good community that's, that's built around there and so from that a couple of years ago we introduced something called Listener's Choice because we noticed that quite a few of the listeners would go to a charity shop and then they'd, they'd post photos to us of what they'd bought oh wow so what we do is we get them to choose an hour's worth of their favourite charity shop find and then we just get them to record the links onto whatever device that they've got to hand and then we string it all together and make a little one hour show out of it how fantastic so there's that community there it's on a community radio station and we're buying all the stuff in charity shops 
So it, it really feels like all those things just fit together so well. It's such a, a lovely thing. And it really is, you know, when I'm doing that on a Sunday morning, it's the highlight of my week. <laughs> Music is front and centre of Simon's life. I wonder just how much it means to him and how much it helps him every day. Well, actually, every hour of every day. Every minute of every hour, every day. Now, this is a massive question. How does music make you feel? It can make you feel lots of different things. And it depends on your mood at the time. You can have different reactions to the same piece of music. Certainly with the stuff that I'm choosing for Charity Shop Classics, I have enormous fun choosing that. So that's, I always feel a little bit giddy, <laughs> particularly if it's Herb Alpert. <laughs> so just something about um, that, that Tijuana brass that makes me a little bit giddy, especially if there's a lot of trombone on there. That's an instrument that makes me feel giddy as well if it's played in a certain way. <laughs> I always like to try and discover new things. And even if it's a piece of music that's old, it might be new to me or something that I already know and finding something different about it. So I'm always curious about music. Sometimes a piece of music can catch you unawares and reveal feelings that you've maybe been suppressing or were bubbling under. For example, my mum passed away a few years ago and it was a, a good six months or so after she died, where I sort of felt like I was moving out of the grief a little bit. And we're just getting ready to go out for a walk on a Sunday morning. And I put on a Glen Campbell album. And I can't remember what song it was. It might have been Try A Little Kindness or whatever the, the opening track on the album was. And I, I didn't think anything, anything of putting on that album. And I put it on and I immediately burst into tears. Because it was a song that we'd listened to on Family Holidays. It just floored me. And I think, you know, it, it, things had obviously just built up and I just needed to have a damn good cry and it just caught me at that moment. Uh, you know, I was just putting away something in the fridge and I just sat there for a good 15 minutes just having a damn good cry. Um, so I think it can help actually, you know, with something like that, help process your feelings without you knowing that they needed processing. Now, what would your life be like without music? empty both emotionally and and also you know physically in the space that i'm in because <laughs> you must have a lot of records a lot of cds a lot of tapes let's not even talk about it i'm starting <laughs> to worry for the uh, the floorboards in the house um yeah it would be empty it would be quiet and i'm not a person who fears silence there's some people who can't handle silence at all sometimes you need silence in your life whether that's time to think or just time to just just be i tend to find that if i'm listening to music i'm listening to music and i can't do do anything else at the same time apart from if i'm in the kitchen and then you know i'll stick on absolute 80s or something like that and dance around with a wooden spoon to whatever the 80s classic they're playing at that time i think i wouldn't know as much about the world I wouldn't have as much knowledge about whether it's art or places, films, books. Music is how I understand the world. It's how I make sense of the world. It's how I interface with the world. Everything I do, I can always trace it back to some sort of musical origin to it somewhere if I dig deep enough. It's how I make my friends. Life would be 
very empty and boring without music. All the show notes for this episode are available in the description, and there's a bunch more stuff at BeforeTheBarOpens.com. Before the Bar Opens is created by me, Emma Clark, and is produced by Rick Watson. I compose the theme music. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and maybe be featured in a future episode of Before the Bar Opens, check out the show notes and follow the Leave Us a Voice Message link. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, hopefully a lovely one, and tell your friends. Season 2 will be along soon, so stay subscribed for updates. Thanks for listening.